0: Dear Heavenly Father, Father, our ministry is a service to you. Our hope, Father, is to serve you in the way we teach, in the way we minister and guide others through the counsel we offer, and Father, we pray that you have been able to use what we've done in great ways to your glory. We won't know all the things that you do with our obedience until we reach the kingdom and we have our full report, but Father, we trust that in the way you've led us in the Spirit and support us through the hands and the work and, and the uh, donations and the prayers of others, that we can already know you are pleased and that you desire us to do even more. We do thank you, Father, for the, the chance that we have to serve you and to uh, to lead others in teaching of your word. And I pray tonight would be another one of those opportunities, Father, something that would be meaningful and enduring, just as your word is. And I pray that the uh, the message that I leave Uh, For those who have come tonight to listen and for those who would listen later is one that you intended by your spirit. And you would guide all who listen to it into obedience according to your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think in any study of 1 Samuel, and particularly of Saul's life, there are three questions that a student will often have in the course of looking at what Saul does in the time he is king. And we're addressing these three questions as we move through the text of 1 Samuel. The first of those questions we addressed a few weeks ago when we asked why is it that God raised up a man out of the tribe of Benjamin to be king when we know from his word through Jacob that it would be from the tribe of Judah that we would see kings rise up. So why did God choose Saul when he always intended to bring kings from Judah? And we looked at that question and we addressed it at least in part in an earlier week. And we'll come back to that again tonight. A second question that often arises is, what is the state of Saul's heart? What is the true nature of this man's heart? We look at his life. There are so many instances in which he does poorly, yet he started well. And we wonder, was this a man who ever knew the Lord truly or not? And we looked at that question a couple of weeks ago. And there is a third question that I think is often asked about Saul when you look at his life, one that we will try to answer tonight. And that third question is, why did Saul, after he was rejected by God, remain in the role of king for so long and we'll look at that tonight and try to answer it as best we can but to pick up where we left off last week as we ended chapter 12 we noticed that there was a pattern in the way Samuel was narrating Saul's early time as king. And this pattern serves to introduce Saul, but it's also foreshadowing some of the events of Saul's life and where the nation as a whole is going to be headed under his leadership. And you remember we looked at this last week. We said that the pattern consisted of three parts in the way Samuel orchestrated his narrative. He has covered this pattern once already, and through, from chapters 8 through about the beginning of chapter 12, we saw the pattern play out. And the pattern had three parts. The pattern always begins with a warning. Samuel records how he warned the people about the problem of asking for a king and rejecting the Lord's leadership. That warning we saw first, and then again last week we saw it repeated a second time in the second part of chapter 12. After the warning, then you come to a story of Saul, a story of his exploits or his adventures as king, you might say. That's the second part of the pattern. And then finally, this pattern ends with the third part, a climactic battle of some kind, where you see the Lord demonstrating his faithfulness to care for the people, regardless of the king and his faithfulness in return to God. So the pattern started in chapter 8. It went all the way into chapter 12, that three-part pattern I just described. We know it's a pattern because Samuel repeats it. And as we ended last week in chapter 12 we saw the beginning of that pattern starting up again with Samuel giving another warning to the people about what they had done wrong in selecting Saul. And that second warning was more intense than the first time around. Samuel describes Saul as the king you have chosen, that you asked for. In other words, emphasizing that the people have made their bed and now they're going to have to lie in it. That is, they've chosen the, the wrong thing and now they're going to have to see the results of it. And then he added at the end of the warning that the king that they've chosen is not going to be able to save them from God's judgment whenever they go about disobeying the covenant. That although they may have selected a king because they want to be like the other nations and they think that's going to be their salvation, so to speak, the Lord reminds them through Samuel that when the king does the wrong thing, that is going to have repercussions not only for the king himself, but for the whole nation. And when the Lord is upset at the nation for violating the terms of the covenant, Their earthly king is no solution to God's wrath. So chapter 12, as we ended last week, that chapter formally ends the period of Judges in the history of Israel. And of course, the book of Judges has ended long before. We're 12 chapters into the book of 1 Samuel. But the time of Judges ruling over men continued into the early parts of this book, as we've said, Samuel being the final of those Judges. But now, beginning in chapter 13, we've officially, or you could say formally, recognized that Israel is now being led by a king. But meanwhile, there will still be prophets among the people. In fact, as I said at the earlier stages of this study, kings in God's economy will not have the privilege of providing the word of God to the people of Israel. Kings are simply there to rule, and the the Word of God will continue to come through other men, through prophets specifically. And as kings go wrong, and they do go wrong from time to time, then you will find the prophets coming alongside them to counsel them with God's Word, to keep them honest, so to speak, and, and living according to the Word of God. And friends, herein lies the problem with Israel's demanding of a king. Kings are people too, and like all men, they will sin from time to time. Now, when the people sinned in the past, when you had prophets leading the people or when you had the judges leading the people, the Lord would speak through those prophets or those judges to the people concerning their sin. And they could listen to the word of the Lord spoken through the judge because the judge was the highest authority in the land. And if the people listened and if they repented and if they responded properly, then they could appease God's wrath and and the Lord would not bring judgment upon the people. So in that way... You can see in the past that the Lord was judging His people through the counsel of His Word, and the people could be rescued from their sin in that way. But, friends, what happens when the person who is called by God to speak the Word of God is no longer the most powerful person in the land? What happens when a sinful king, who is now leading the people, begins to lead them away from God and away from His counsel, away from the law? What would such a man say, for example, to a prophet who God sends, to give counsel to this king and to correct him and rebuke him and the nation along with him. Do you think the monarch is going to receive that kind of critique gladly? It would take a very humble, very godly sort to receive the rebuke of a prophet. And as you know, most kings are not that sort. So from this point forward, Israel has made it much more difficult for itself to know and respond to the word of God, to take the counsel of God and use it to their advantage, to step away from destruction and disobedience. God is going to continue to speak, but now that he has to speak from a prophet to a king in order to reach the people, generally speaking, the problem has become that much harder. God is going to remain faithful. There's no doubt that God will continue to do what he has said he will do. He'll continue to send prophets to the king. He'll continue to admonish the people to do the right thing. But more often than not, what will start to happen in the history of Israel is the prophet will not be heard. And instead, the king, who won't like to have his power challenged, who won't like to see his sin rebuked, that king is going to lead the people in persecuting the prophets of God. And that's why we hear in Scripture that prophets are always martyred. Christ himself said that it is not right that a prophet would die outside of Jerusalem, which was a way of indicating that the prophets were often killed by their own people. In Jerusalem, that is. And prophets being martyred becomes the norm, Christ himself being the ultimate of those martyrs. And there's a bit of irony in all of this when you think about it, because Samuel gave Saul his power in the beginning. And as Samuel anointed him, he was declaring to the people, this is a wrong thing that you are asking us to do. Which would have certainly suggested to Saul that he shouldn't have wanted the job. If he had wanted to do what was right, to listen to God's heart, when he noticed that the prophet who was anointing him is saying that this is not a good thing that we do this, you would think Saul might have said, well then we shouldn't do this. And at first, you might remember Saul didn't want the job. He was hiding off in the baskets or whatever during the coronation moment. But nevertheless, he took it. And he took it knowing it was an unwise move. So we might have expected that Saul would have determined to lean heavily on Samuel's counsel as king. To turn to Samuel at many times and say, What is the right thing for me to do? How should I approach this job so that I can do what God would want? Had he done so, well then God would have been ruling his people just as he was before. Now through a king rather than through judges. And the word of God spoken through the prophet would still have been front and center in the people's lives and their king and and their people would have avoided the problems that Samuel warned was coming but as we know or as you should know this does not happen Saul becomes instead the instrument that God uses to fulfill the very prophecy that he spoke against the king and against the people Saul's sin leads the people themselves away from the Lord Now, speaking of Saul's downfall, we need to move back to Samuel now and to this three-part pattern. As I said, the first part has already been covered at the end of chapter 12. So now we have parts 2 and 3. We'll do part of those today. We'll do part 2 of this narrative, if you will, today as we begin to see Samuel revealing how Saul moves from a good start to a bad finish. And the next part is the part of Saul's exploits or adventures, as I say, and that begins in chapter 13. 1 Samuel 13, verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while a 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gilbeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Well, chapter 13 opens up with a simple verse giving the age of Saul and the time he reigned. And for such a simple statement, there is a remarkable amount of controversy surrounding verse 1 of this chapter. And I have spent a considerable amount of time doing whatever research I could on all the various controversies that chapter 13, verse 1 raises. And I've done all that research so that you don't have to because it is exhausting. But I think I've come to a view that I can share with you. Let's go into the controversy. And it begins back in the original Hebrew manuscripts the original manuscripts the original hebrew manuscripts all the copies we have of first samuel they are all missing the number of saul's age and all but the final number of the years of his reign of the years he ruled in fact in the dead sea scrolls chapter 13 verse 1 is missing altogether they don't even have the whole verse so what do we have in those original manuscripts well in the original manuscripts here's how verse 1 reads Saul was years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years over Israel. Now, this is the only verse in Scripture that addresses Saul's age when he began to rule. So without that missing number at the beginning of verse 1, we're left guessing about Saul's age. And so as you look at your English Bibles and you see in many cases a number being presented there, I, I need you to understand that number is a guess. There is no number in the original Hebrew manuscripts. In my case, the NASB that I use, they propose 30 years old as Saul's age. Other versions, and some of those you may have here, they probably say 40 years. Some of you all have 40 years, I'm sure. There are other versions, like the ASV, that simply show nothing in keeping with the original Hebrew manuscripts. They just show a blank there, no age at all. And, of course, this is our first controversy. How old was Saul when he began to reign? Before we look at that, let's go to the second controversy. The second controversy is how long did Saul reign as king? We know he reigned longer than two years, but how much longer? And so the question becomes, what number do you put in front of the number two? Well, in this case, we do have some corroborating scripture to help us answer this question, because in Acts 13, verse 21, we're told this. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So Acts 13 tells us that Saul reigned for 40 years. Now, in chapter 13, verse 1, we've read that there's a two there. So if Acts says 40, then where does the two come in, in First Samuel 13? Well, one way to suggest the answer is that Saul reigned for 42 years, in which case then the number missing here is a 4, and then you would say in Acts 13, the writer in Acts Luke was merely rounding the number. The number was around 40, he was saying. In other words, it's an approximation. On the other hand, you could say that Saul reigned exactly 40 years, just as Acts said, In which case, then, in 1 Samuel, you would say that there is no missing number. That, in other words, the writer of 1 Samuel is saying he reigned for two years because that's dating the events of chapter 13. So, simply put, it would say Saul had reigned for two years when the events of chapter 13 began to take place. So, if you believe Samuel was giving the total number of Saul's reign, then you would say it was 42 If you believe he's just dating the events of chapter 13, then you would say there is no missing number. It is only two. If you choose to believe that it's 42, then you introduce a third controversy. And that third controversy is, well, then when did the events of chapter 13 take place? Did they happen early in the 42 years? Did they happen late in the 42 years? And there's different schools of thought on how to answer that third controversy. Now, as I said, there have been many attempts to resolve all of these mysteries, and I've looked at all of the explanations I could find. And and after doing all that research, I I wanted to make it simpler for you. So rather than driving through all the opportunities, let's just look at what I believe is the likely explanation for all of these differences of view. First, I believe the second part of verse 1 is simply intended to date the events of chapter 13. So I believe it is correct as it reads which is Saul reigned for two years and then the events of chapter 13 took place. I believe that's what's intended there. So therefore, the events of chapter 13 happened two years into Saul's reign. Then that settles the second controversy. That would mean that Saul's total reign was 40 years, just as Acts 13 says, not 42 as the NASB has concluded. So he his reign for 40 years... This chapter takes place two years into that reign, and that leaves only the first controversy unresolved, that is the age of Saul. Now, here again, we have to make a guess on this one, because there's no way to corroborate the guess that we make. There's no other scripture that tells us anything about Saul's age when he took the reign. Some translators have concluded, as the NASB did, that Saul was 30 when he began to rule, and they have two primary reasons for that conclusion. They take this view primarily because we know that Saul died as a soldier in battle. If he started to rule at age 30 and ruled for 40 years, then that means he would have died at age 70. And this particular camp of view, this particular point of view, finds it difficult to imagine anyone leading an army into battle at an age older than 70. So they choose 30 as the start of his reign as king because they're trying to keep his final age down as low as possible to 70 in this case. Plus, a second reason they take this view is that they think a starting age of 30 as king seems to fit better with the description of a younger Saul in the earlier chapters of 1 Samuel. That young, strapping, handsome guy that comes out of nowhere, coming out of nowhere at age 40 seems a little more improbable to them. So that's why 30 was chosen by the NASB. But other translations believe that he was closer to the age of 40. And that's where I favor, in fact, I believe that chapter 13 is giving his age at 40. And the reason is because we're told in verse 3 of this same chapter that Jonathan, his son, leads an army into battle, which would mean that Jonathan must have been at least around 20 years old if he's going to be a military leader, if he's going to lead a company of troops. But now, if Saul began to rule when Saul himself was only age 30, and two years into his reign he already has a son old enough to lead men into battle, then that would mean that Jonathan is about age 12 here when he's leading men in battle. And that's obviously not practical. So we come to the reasonable conclusion that Saul began to reign at age 40, and at 42 years old he had a son old enough to lead men into battle, And that two years into his reign, the events of chapter 13 begin to take place. Now, the point in all of this, and the reason I took so much time to go through it, is that we're learning Saul has not been in charge for very long. He's only been two years into his reign. And at the same time, we're learning that he is going to sit on the throne for a long time. And this raises that question I started with this evening. Why, if two years into his reign, things start to go wrong, why does he spend so much time on the throne? Why doesn't God remove him? Well, we'll come to that in in a few minutes, but I want you to see that this chapter sets up that question. And the events of the chapter itself begin with Saul sending a warning shot across the bow, if you will, of the Philistines. And to give you the background on what's taking place here, two years into Saul's rule, it appears he decides to put the Philistines on notice that the land... Of the Israelites belongs to Israel. And in the land of Israel, in Judah, just north of Jerusalem, there's a plain. And on this plain, the Philistines had stationed a garrison. Of troops. Now what they had done is they had taken a contingent of their army and stationed them well up into the hill country, away from the plains, the western coastal plain where the Philistine cities were located. They did this in order to occupy some of the territory around where the Israelites lived, to keep an eye on them, and to defend the entry points from which the Israelites might venture down into the western valleys. So the Philistines had set up this forward-looking post to protect themselves and to watch their enemies. And Saul wanted to clear the area of these Philistines to get rid of this garrison. So we're told he takes 3,000 men and he splits them into two groups. Saul leads one group of soldiers coming from Michmash. Michmash is about one and a half miles to the north of where this garrison was located. So Saul's coming from the north about a mile and a half away with his group of troops. And a second group is led by his son, Jonathan. Jonathan is coming from the south, from Saul's hometown of Gilbaa. That's about three miles south of the garrison. So you have troops coming from the north and from the south. It's a classic pincer move designed to squeeze the garrison in the middle. Now, Jonathan's troops were told, finish the battle. They, They put the battle to an end. They destroy the garrison. And when this occurs, word gets back to the Philistine cities on the coastal plain that Saul has attacked their garrison and Saul knew that this was going to happen the whole point was to provoke the Philistines and he does this through this unexpected attack and now he knows there will be a retaliation from the Philistines so in verse 3 we're told he blows a trumpet call and he calls all of Israel to arms for what he knows will be an ensuing battle with the Philistines and the people come in preparation and in response to that call so now let's see what the Philistines do in response to this provocation going back to the text chapter 13, verse 5. Now, the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped at Michmash, east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So now you see the Philistines' response. They bring a force of 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and they say the number of foot soldiers is innumerable. All right, so they're bringing pretty much everything in the kitchen sink. If Saul wanted to provoke the Philistines, he has succeeded beyond all expectations. They enter into Michmash, and they wait. Now they're sitting up where the garrison used to be, and they're just waiting for Saul to come and engage them. In verse 6 of my translation, we are told that the people saw that they were in a strait, but really the word in Hebrew just means they are afflicted or they're in distress. So the Israelites are gathered in Gilgal, distressed by the size of the response of the Philistines. Now Gilgal is next to Jericho in the Jordan River Valley, so they have moved now down from the hill country, down into the Jordan River Valley, east of where Michmash is, and they're all gathered there, sort of hunkered down, worried now about what faces them up on the hills when they go back. Some respond to their fear, we're told, by hiding in caves and cellars and cliffs and bushes. Others, they go the next step. They run over the Jordan. They go east into the land of Gad. They escape entirely from the chance to fight. So Saul stays in this place with the remainder of his trembling troops in Gilgal, watching his numbers just dwindle away as everyone is fearful of what's coming next. This is his turning point as king. Verse 8. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said... Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked for the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. We're told here that this whole scene, this this period of time in Gilgal, was necessary because Saul is waiting seven days, he says, for Samuel to arrive, which was a timetable that Samuel set or determined. This should remind you of instructions that Samuel gave Saul early when he first found Saul and anointed him and said, You will be king. He then gave him those three signs that he would see along his path home. And then he said, Wait for me at the end of that for seven days. I'll read you that again just to remind you. First Samuel 10, 5-8. This is Samuel speaking to Saul. He says, Afterward, you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, and a lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. It shall be that these signs come to you. Do for yourself what the occasion requires for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Remember that? All right, so that was the first trip to Gilgal, where sacrifices took place. It's mentioned here in chapter 10. The actual moment where Samuel does go down to Gilgal and offer those sacrifices that he promised to do, that happens at the end of chapter 11. But apparently, Samuel had given Saul these instructions again, similar instructions, in preparation for their battle against the Philistines. So Saul knew this routine. They had done it before. He understood what was going to happen. So he has taken his troops to Gilgal, and this would explain, by the way, why the troops are spending their time in the hills, caves, and across the river, because this seven day of waiting is just making everybody incredibly nervous. And they don't know really what they're waiting for, maybe, or even if they do, you know how it is, when something bad is in your future, or so you'll fear, the waiting just makes everything worse. That's where they're at at this point. So on the seventh day, Samuel said he would arrive, he would lead them in making sacrifices to the Lord. Those sacrifices would win the Lord's favor, or so that's what Saul thought, and would make possible the Lord's intercession on behalf of the people in battle. That's the plan. In verse 8, we're told Saul looks around somewhere near the end of that week and notices at the rate I'm losing, folks, there won't be a battle, because I won't have any troops. And you can imagine this scene really easily, from his point of view, that is. Every morning he wakes up, Comes out of his tent, goes out to inspect his troops, only to find more of them missing. Every morning there's fewer than there were the morning before, right? And as that week goes on, he does the math. Now he's a little worried. It may remind you of a previous military leader who saw the Lord reducing the number of his army down to 300 before it was all over, right? So then, as Saul tells the story, on the seventh day, the wait's at a point where it's just unbearable and his worry reaches a climax. So what I assume he must have been thinking to himself is, why does a king have to wait for a prophet anyway? I'm king, aren't I? Can't I just do what I need to do? Who is this guy? And in a sense, it might have made him look weak. It might have made him look indecisive among his troops. He doesn't like that. And after all, it's just a process of cutting up some animals and burning the meat on a fire. Hardly rocket science. I can do this. It doesn't require a special guy to do this, does it? So before the end of the seventh day, he can't take it any longer. He commands the people, or as he puts it, I had to force myself to bring the animals up for sacrifice, and remember, this is Saul, a Benjamite, offering sacrifices for the people. And in making the sacrifice himself, what is he violating? What rule is he violating that made Samuel so upset? It's not the law, for this is not the tabernacle. This is not a moment in which the priesthood, by necessity, has to officiate. You see examples of other men offering sacrifice throughout Scripture, setting up their own altars and making sacrifice when they felt they needed to to praise the Lord and worship. There's nothing inherently wrong with one guy deciding to make a sacrifice. That's not the problem. This is the problem of him not obeying the word of the Lord. You can see how seriously the Lord takes obedience to the word that he speaks through prophets when you think of another example from elsewhere in Scripture, that of King Hezekiah. And you may know King Hezekiah was one of the good kings. And King Hezekiah was called at a point in time to cleanse the temple of idolatry. And he had to follow the instructions of prophets, Nathan among them, who specifically gave him the instructions from the Lord. And in Second Chronicles 29:25, we're told that Hezekiah stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and harps and with lyres, according to the command of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet, for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. So there's a man, in the case of a king, who did everything the way he was told to do it by prophets. Why? Because he knew it was the word of the Lord coming through the prophet. And here, on the other hand, you have Saul placing his authority and concerns over that of the prophet and the word that God spoke through that man. So the seventh day wasn't over yet. His argument that Samuel was delaying or that he was late doesn't hold any water because we're told that on the day that he sacrificed is the day Samuel arrived, which is the day he was supposed to arrive. He had not failed to keep his promise, and neither had the Lord. It is interesting that Saul was determined to conduct the sacrifice because he thought he needed it to win the Lord's favor, yet he wasn't concerned with doing it the way the Lord told him it had to be done. Isn't that ironic? You want the Lord's favor, so you go about a ritual, but you don't even have enough concern for the Lord to do the ritual the way the Lord said it had to be done. You can't have it both ways. Sure enough, as soon as Saul has finished the whole thing, he looks up, and guess who's there? Samuel. I think his reason to run out and greet Samuel is because of a guilty conscience. As he comes out, Samuel challenges him with that what have you done question. It alludes to a lot more than merely the fact that he went forward with the sacrifice. It points to a much more serious consequence which Samuel must have known was coming. Saul offers his excuse and basically it boils down to you took too long. And then Saul says, I feared the Philistines would attack while the people were without the protection of the Lord. Now think about that comment for just a moment. It would seem, by that comment, that Saul views the sacrificial program that he was waiting to see conducted as the means of winning the Lord's protection, which would mean he puts his faith in the ritual. The ritual had the power to protect, right? Because if you ask yourself the same question a different way, you get a different answer. Would the Lord allow his own people to be destroyed if you're simply waiting for what the Lord told you to wait for? In other words, if you're doing what he asked you to do, do you think he's going to allow the result to be your failure? Is that how the Lord works? I mean, the logic falls apart. On the other hand, if you go against the word of the Lord, do you think that's going to improve your chances of success? The answer you offer depends on your faith, doesn't it? If you have faith to think the Lord keeps his promises, you're going to answer one way. But if you think it depends on your own actions in the context of a ritual, well, then you're going to answer a different way. Does the Lord have the power to protect his people regardless of Samuel's timing? If only Saul had recognized his period of waiting was not... A test of his patience. It was a test of his heart. And he failed that test in this moment. And Samuel's response is immediate and unforgiving. Verse 13 Samuel says to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up to Gilgal, to Gilbeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. So Samuel's response is pretty dramatic. Now it may seem a little harsh to our ears, but it's entirely appropriate when you consider the meaning of what Saul has done. Samuel says Saul has not kept the commandment of the Lord. And we know that's the commandment because it came from Samuel. Samuel, being the prophet, spoke it to Saul. And that command was, wait for the prophet before you offer sacrifice because the prophet will lead the nation in that sacrifice. In other words, the king himself did not have the authority to conduct this sacrifice because the Lord had not appointed it to him. He had appointed it to the prophet. So when Saul made this mistake, his actions were indicating that the word of God was not his authority, that he was his own authority. And the moment he tried to rule Israel outside God's authority, he forfeited his authority to rule. In fact, Samuel says Saul could have had the kingdom over Israel forever. Now, that statement all by itself leaves us scratching our heads a little bit, right? Because we know that the rule over Israel was going to be done through the tribe of Judah not through a Benjamite, right? But remember, Samuel is speaking about what was humanly possible. In human terms, that's what someone looking forward in the future would have anticipated, right? A king is on the throne, he's ruling, God has put him there, he's going to have that rule as a dynasty. There's, there's every expectation from a human point of view. From Saul's point of view, there was nothing preventing his family from having a dynasty. Nothing except his own sin. And therefore, the fall of Saul was inevitable because Saul's heart was not without sin. And as it plays out here, we see where it, t- it took him. So, you can hear Samuel's words, therefore, as a kind of theoretical possibility, not a theological Possibility, Saul was always going to sin. He was always going to forfeit the kingdom. We know that from the beginning. And as we said, Saul becomes the exception to prove the rule in that he is not from Judah and not the one who should be in charge. And he will not end well because it was not by God's will that he would have been chosen. And in that sense, he's the exception to everything God will do to the tribe of Judah. Notice it says the Lord has already sought to identify Saul's successor. Did you catch that in Samuel's words? Even as they were standing there, Samuel says, your successor is being sought by the Lord. That successor, he says, will be a man after God's heart, which is a way of saying he will have as his goal pleasing the Lord in contrast to what Saul's goal obviously was, which was to do something for his own sake. And with that goal that is pleasing the Lord, this future king will endeavor to rule the people knowing that the Lord is the true ruler working through the king and his prophets, and therefore he doesn't have independent authority to do whatever he wants. He's only there because God is placed in there, so if, he's, if he divorces himself from God's authority, he completely loses his legitimacy. That's the difference in the heart of this man versus the one who will follow him. Unlike Saul, just two short years here, he's already come to believe that his authority is his own, to do as he wishes. Remember, we said that the chief problem with a king ruling God's people is that human kings will not take criticism kindly from God's word. And Saul just received one of those stinging criticisms we talked about, right—the throne being removed from him by a prophet. Now, if he had truly had a heart for God, you might imagine him at this point saying, "Well, here's my crown. Let God do what He will," right? But he's not going to do that. He's been fired, but he will not step down. And the Lord will allow him to remain on the throne here for almost four decades after this point. Now, the decades between this moment and the moment when Saul dies are purposeful in God's economy. They allow time for God to prepare the next king to receive the throne. Because at this point, David is not nearly prepared, if even born yet, to accept that role. So there has to be something to fill the gap. So Samuel leaves Saul alone on the battlefield without the Lord's blessing for the battle with the Philistines. And Saul, we're told, counts his army, finding only 600 guys there. So the number six in Scripture is the number of fallen, sinful men. And it couldn't be more appropriate for the fallen king's army to have only 600 men in it. Saul takes this meager army up to Geba, about 1.5 miles from that Philistine garrison again. Sorry. And then in verse 16, Now Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with him were staying in Geba of Benjamin, while the Philistines camped at Michmash. And the raiders came down from the camp of Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual, and another company turned toward Beth-Horan, and another company turned toward the border, which overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. So Samuel leaves where they were down in the Jordan River Valley, and Saul and Jonathan and those 600 men, they go up, back up to the hill country of Judah in the, the place of Geba. And he's very close now to the garrison where you have that huge Philistine army encamped. Immediately, you're beginning to see Saul falter in his role as king after the words that Samuel spoke. For example, you're going to see him here no longer having the Midas touch because God's no longer blessing him in that way. But yet he still acts as king. So for the next 30-something years, God leaves him in this role, preparing David in the background, while at the same time exposing this man's sin and exposing the error of Israel in receiving him, showing what a king absent God's authority does amongst the people, drawing a nice contrast to what will come later in David. So there's a message that will be taught through the life of this man over these coming years. And the Lord has no interest in propping up Saul before the people anymore. He's just going to let him expose himself over and over again. So the Philistines are still waiting for their confrontation. Saul, though, is in this city, Geba. He's now hiding, refusing to go into battle because he knows he's only got 600 men. And he has no chance of winning if he were to go into battle. So the Philistines go out looking for him. They wonder, well, if he's not going to fight us, we'll go fight him. And so they send out what looked to be scouting parties, north, east, and west, looking for Saul. And those are the three places we heard mentioned here. The one direction they don't go is south, and that's where Saul is. So they don't go and find They don't find him. He's, he's hiding just a mile and a half from them, but they don't know where he is. As these raids continue, Samuel explains to us that the Philistines had a distinct advantage over the people of Israel, which is one of the reasons why they were so vexed by the philistines and never could defeat them or had difficulty defeating them verse 19 but no blacksmith could be found in all the land of israel for the philistines said otherwise the hebrews will make swords or spears so all israel went down to the philistines each to sharpen his plowshare his mattock his axe and his hoe the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares the mattocks the forks and the axes and to fix the hoes. The point in Samuel's commentary is to let you know the circumstances of the age. The Philistines were one of the first people groups in the world to learn how to work with iron. And they developed smelting of iron and creating iron tools. But the Israelites had not yet developed that skill at this point in their history. So you have the Iron Age people and the Bronze Age people basically fighting each other. And that doesn't work out well for Bronze Age people and the philistines had declined to share their blacksmith techniques with jews for that very reason it was like protecting a military secret so the best they could do was to buy tools from the philistines and then when they get dull they didn't have the means to work them back to being sharp they had to take them back down to the philistines and pay to have them repaired it cost them two-thirds of a shekel which was an inflated price to do the work it was a costly monopoly basically And all this meant that the Philistine armies had a decisive advantage in war because they had access to these tools and the Israelites did not. So there's a little background. Moving on. Verse 22. So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son, Jonathan. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Only two people in all of Israel's army had anything close to matching what was coming from the other side. And those two were Saul and Jonathan themselves. And the Lord had left Saul in the bed that he made in disobeying the Lord because he's only given him 600 guys, no weapons, no armor of any significance. Only he and his son have anything to fight with, which would mean they would have to engage in battle. And that starts us to think, what got us to this point so quickly? We were doing so well with this guy. We know the event that triggered it. But what's behind that event, that decision? He was impatient, he was worried, he was concerned that his army wasn't going to win the battle and he was taking matters into his own hands to try to win that battle by curring God's favor with this ritual and he was going through the motions to get the outcome that he demanded. Ironically, because of his impatience, that is not waiting for Samuel, he's found himself in exactly the place that he's so worried about. His lack of obedience to God's word brought about the very outcome that, that he assumed he was trying to fix through his disobedience. And at this point, we're told in verse 23, the Philistines decide to mass for battle. And all this bad news now would leave us assuming, if we didn't know the rest of the book, I guess, that the story of Saul is about to end in chapter 13. And, you know, we're going to move on to the next king rapidly thereafter. Now, that doesn't actually happen, which begs the question, why? And I've already begun to answer it. One of those reasons is that you have to prepare the next king. But in the meantime, God still has a promise that he has to keep. God's not so much concerned with Saul and his future at this point, But he still has a promise to keep his people. And he is not going to be faithless to his people just because the man that was in the role of king was faithless to him. So this is an important detail in the story of Saul. Saul's unfaithfulness does not result in the Lord becoming unfaithful to his people. And so he has to find a way to be faithful to his people, protecting them in the midst of the land, while at the same time making a point to them about the error of selecting Saul, and yet at the same time disciplining Saul for what Saul has done. He's got to fit all of this together. That explains the next four chapters of the book. He raised up Saul as a king, as we said, but it's an exception to prove the rule. And so I've said that phrase several times, and just to reiterate, the rule I'm speaking about is the promise that God said that kings would come from the tribe of Judah ultimately, Christ. But before then, other men of Judah would rule. Saul is the exception to that rule to show what happens when God's people are not content to wait on the Lord and obey His word, but try to go around His word. So the people ran ahead of the Lord, if you remember, in the very fact that they demanded a king before the Lord was ready to anoint the intended one, that is, David. So isn't it interesting that the Lord provided a temporary solution, Saul, who was an exception to this rule of coming from Judah, so that he could show them, the people, what happens when you act rashly and impatiently and try to rush the Lord. They did it in selecting him. He does it in his own act of trying to win that battle, and they all see the fall together as a nation. But the people still need God to protect them. So he is not done being faithful. So as Saul errs, nonetheless, the Lord works to take care of his people. And he does so to give time for David to rise up and be prepared. And I might add, we'll look at this later in the story, but as Saul starts to know the challenge from David, Saul begins to persecute David, as you all probably know. And in the response to that persecution, David spends 10 years on the run. And those 10 years he spends on the run are the 10 years in which he wrote the vast majority of the Psalms. So the Psalms, which come out of that distressed experience of David on the run, are a great source of comfort to so many in the faith who have been under their own moments of trial or stress. That would never have existed, presumably, had there hadn't been this opportunity for David to be in conflict with Saul for a while. So God is fitting together these pieces for good in the long span, and the time of, of history, even if it doesn't appear to be good for some moment in one of those men's lives or for the nation as a whole. So the Lord is going to work with Saul, but wait for time for David to be ready. And in between those two, when he does want to raise up someone to do a good work for the nation, who is he going to use? We can't use Saul, not as a routine, because he's turned his back on Saul. Can't use David, not in every case, he's too young. And he's not taking the role of king yet, formally. So who can he pick in the meantime? Who would be the logical person to use in place of Saul? Saul's successor, at least in human terms, Jonathan. So Jonathan becomes an important figure in the book in these in-between period when God uses him in place of Saul to rescue the people from time to time. And here we see that happening in verse 1 of chapter 14. We're not going to do all 14. We're going to do just the first five verses. We're just going to introduce Jonathan as the next major player. Verse 1. Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the younger man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison. That is, on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gilbaa under the pomegranate tree, which was in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side, and the name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other was Seneh. The one crag rose on the north opposite Michmash and the other on the south opposite Geba. Maps are really helpful, by the way, in 1 Samuel. Um, but I'll try my best to describe for you what's happening here. Go back a little bit for a moment. Earlier in chapter 9, the Lord declared to Samuel that Saul was going to be the one who would free Israel from the Philistines. But Saul's not actually the one who's going to do it. We now come to understand Saul's family will ultimately carry this out. Saul's legacy, his son specifically. So at this point, you see Saul appearing to be staying in his hometown, resting comfortably under a pomegranate tree. The scene is intended to show you the, the kind of idleness of him. He's not working to prepare for battle. He's just laying around. And he's got 600 soldiers who have effectively become 600 bodyguards protecting him in this little town. He seems to be content just to hide and not worry about fighting. Interestingly, Samuel notes that the descendants of Eli were still operating in the tabernacle in Shiloh, and he names them and he gives their progeny. So Phidias and Hophni, the two brothers, both die on the same day, as does their father Eli. So where would the high priest have gone next? He would have gone to the son of the oldest son. And now we find that the oldest son of Phidias was Ahitub. He has apparently died, and now you have Hijah, his son now, in the role as high priest. So you see the full lineage there. But why mention Ichabod? Ichabod was not in that line at all. He was the brother of the one who received the role of priest. He was the uncle of the priest. It doesn't make any sense why he's being listed, at least not in the sense of the lineage of the priesthood. And then the whole idea of why the priesthood's even being mentioned is sort of off the, the, the tone of what's being discussed. Well, the answer comes first in remembering what Ichabod means. The name Ichabod meant the glory has departed. So Samuel is intentionally reminding you in the course of describing other events that as all this is happening back in Shiloh, we still have the same family in that role as high priest, the family that we were told by God would not stay there forever, that their reign would come to an end. But yet here they are still several generations later ruling. What do you think of that? Well, we know at some point they do stop to rule. So it reminds us that sometimes God takes a while to bring what he has said to pass and that he pronounced it would happen through the naming of Ichabod. The glory has departed. So he gave a prophetic indication through that name that what was said to happen would happen and it was just a matter of time. An interesting thing to bring up in Saul's reign after Saul has been said to no longer have the authority to reign. It explains that you can wait a while and still see God play out what he said. He's done it with the priest. Now he's doing it with the king. And don't read too much into the fact that Saul is still doing things. It doesn't mean God has changed his mind. He is not going to have this rule forever. And the name Ichabod is such a great connection between the two. You have one discredited family being associated with another discredited family. And just as the glory of the Lord departed from the tabernacle during Eli's mistake, so Saul's reign has lost its glory as well and one day will come to an end in God's timing. So these two families are perfect bedfellows in Samuel's story. Saul, now back to the story, to finish this up, Saul sits in comfort in his home, but his son, Jonathan, is not content to sit still. Without telling dad, which would indicate to you that He knew that dad probably wouldn't like what he's about to go do. He decides to act to win the battle himself. And this is what he decides will win the battle. He goes out into battle by himself and only with an armor bearer with him. That's his strategy. Now, just to make sure you understand, an armor bearer is like a caddy to a golfer. They carry the weapons, the armor. They kind of tell you that looks like about 300 yards. You might want to head to the left a little. This is really all they're doing. Okay? So forget Saul's 600 and forget Gideon's 300 for that matter, Jonathan's about to go to fight by himself against an uncountable Philistine army. This is faith, right? There's no other explanation, or it's lunacy, but I'm going to give him credit. It's faith. The Philistines are in Michmash while well, Jonathan is coming up from Geba. Back to your map. He's moving from the south to the north through a rough hill country terrain separating these two sites was a steep wadi a wadi is a canyon that's dry most of the year but if it ever gets rain the water rushes down the sides of the canyon fills the the channel and water gushes through at high speed out of nowhere deserts see this often and this part of the world is filled with these wadis and there was a north there was a wadi between where jonathan is starting and where the garrison is located and it runs east to west so it's like a gash in the ground So this means that the path Jonathan is choosing to take to engage in this battle is the worst possible path. He's going to go down this steep crag and he's going to have to come up the other side and then that's where he's going to have to start the battle. Why would he engage in a suicide mission like this? One more verse, verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. So the answer is, it's faith. And We're going to study his victory next week. But it's already easy to see that Saul's son is going to become that example of faith to contrast with his father's failure to trust in the Lord's word. So God's going to still continue to teach lessons even in the midst of letting this man's rule peter out. Dear Father, uh, I thank you, Father, for the lessons of Saul and for Samuel and for Jonathan. Each of us, Father, can be a Saul at times. We can each be a Samuel or a Jonathan when we choose to be, Father. And and we ask, Father, that you would uh, cause our hearts to be turned toward you and in patience and in faith to wait on you and to work against impossible odds when that's how you call us to to serve you, Father. Doing it all, knowing, Lord, that whatever outcomes might come are, are in your control and by your hand and according to your will. And We can't make things better by disobeying your word, Father, or by shrinking back from a walk of faith. We can't improve our chances, so to speak. By how we, but um, by by turning away from the hard things you've asked us to do, we rest in you, and in your word. So thank you, Father, for that reminder. And uh, bring us back next week, Father. Let us continue to seek in Saul's life the examples of how best to serve you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.